Welcome everybody to Beyond the Shadows. I'm author and ghost historian Mike Ricksecker. Tonight, a special Halloween edition of the podcast. So this is a little bit different than what we did for the live stream on the YouTube channel. Uh, Edge of the Rabbit Hole YouTube channel is where we broadcast the live version of Beyond the Shadows. A little bit different for this evening since on that live version, what we did is we went over a lot of different paranormal evidence. There were a lot of uh, photos or some video footage, which doesn't really work out so well for a podcast. So since this is going to be the special Halloween edition of the podcast, since it is Halloween 2020 right now, what I'm going to be doing is reading ghost stories that I've written. Now, most of these are going to be true stories, and the ones that aren't uh, will basically be um, you know, fictional tales based on real history and legend. So, what I'm going to do is start off with, oh, and I guess we have to say this edition of Beyond the Shadows is brought to you by 100 Road Roast. It helps young ghosts. That's our coffee. You can find that out at 100roadmedia.com. So the first story I'm going to read is actually from my book, A Walk in the Shadows. It's the beginning of the humanoid figure chapter. And for those of you that follow me on Facebook, uh, you saw me reading this to, <laughs> reading bedtime stories to baby Yoda. Uh, one night a couple weeks ago, and this is what I was reading, so enjoy. I was young, very young, perhaps eight or nine years old, the night I was scared speechless. I had been in bed in the midst of a dead sleep when something had suddenly awoken me. It hadn't been a sound, a roaring engine down the road, or some random object falling off my dresser onto the hardwood floor of my bedroom. No, it was a presence. It was the middle of the night and the house was deathly still, dark save for the light from the street lamp slinking through the window and the soft glow of the peanut's nightlight against the far wall. My eyes adjusted to the dim lighting and looked down the length of my bed. That's when I saw it. In the corner of my bedroom, between my closet door and the window overlooking the driveway below, stood a shadowy figure. It was as tall as a man, with vague features of a face, but nothing else discernible. I couldn't even tell if it was wearing clothes. For a long while we stared at each other, I at it, and it at me. Part of me hoped it would just go away, perhaps slide into the open closet doorway and just disappear. Then perhaps I could just chalk the incident up to a strange dream in the middle of the night. But that's not what happened. The shadowy figure approached me where I lied and hovered over me. Its presence blocked out the light that flitted in from the outside, and the world around me grew dark and heavy. I could still not see any features the shadow may have borne. It was dark and ominous, and as quiet as the dead. Then it reached for me. I tried to scream but couldn't. My mouth gaped open and all my muscles tightened as I struggled to let loose with a cry to my parents for help. My body failed me while shadowy hands took hold of me. I was frightened out of my mind, not knowing what this creature had in mind to do with me. I was absolutely helpless, but its next actions made no sense. The shadow grabbed my arms and pulled them across my body, yanking my wrists up to my neck. I continued to try to scream, but still, nothing came out. What was this thing going to do with me? Why had it crossed my arms? I almost felt like I was choking. It let go of me then and rose from my bed. It turned from me and exited my bedroom door, which was directly to my right. I rotated my head and watched as it suddenly ran down the hall to the linen closet, 
opened it, and then darted inside, closing the door behind it. I lied there motionlessly for a long moment, arms still crossed, mouth still gaping open, trying to scream over what had just happened to me. Finally, I was able to climb out of my bed and shuttle over to my parents' bedroom directly across the hall. I woke them from their slumber and told them what had happened. But like all good parents, they were comforting and reassuring and told me it was all just a bad dream. I slept with them the rest of the night. So that is actually a true story, something that did actually happen to me when I was about eight years old. And it is a story that I recount quite often uh, during interviews and whenever we do uh, podcasts on shadow people or even, you know, like unveiling the shadows. That was absolutely a story that I told. Uh, So that was basically an excerpt from A Walk in the Shadows, and it's on audiobook as well. So if you want to continue to listen to me read that, you can also pick up the, uh, the audiobook version of that. Now, this next one is a lot of fun, The Legend Beneath the Coal Bin, and this is one of those from Campfire Tales Midwest, my book that came out in 2016, and yeah, it's fictional based on real history and legends, but it's also based on my own personal history too, so yes, while it has uh, all that uh, backstory of the Native Americans in there, this is also based on something that I actually did with my uh, <laughs> uh, with my sister, with my cousin, and the, the boy next door that, yes, I did actually uh, try to spook them, in which I, I had convinced uh, the boy Matthew was his name, that my grandparents' house was haunted. And from there, once I let him in on the joke, after I tricked him enough, um, we convinced my sister and my cousin, Tony and Mindy, that uh, that the house was haunted. And then, of course, once they were in on it and, you know, you know we let them know, hey, we got you, then we started to um, basically spook ourselves. We were trying to convince, of course, the adults that it was haunted, which they didn't buy into it. But they played along, and they also started setting up things around the house. And what we ended up calling this was... Uh, you know, the Indian chief, that the house was haunted by the Indian chief. So this story is based on that fun that we had when I was like 11, 12, 13, 14 years old, like right around there. So this is uh, The Legend Beneath the Colbin from Campfire Tales Midwest. Do you really expect me to believe that this is going to work? That's what the book said. I grinned at my cousin Mandy as the four of us held the feather-covered rods out in front of us. If the rods cross on their own, then there's an Indian buried right where we're standing. We inched further into the coal bin, small clouds of dust billowing before us as we shuffled across the floor, when suddenly the two rods crossed. Oh my God! It was only supposed to be a joke to scare my sister and our younger cousin, but I never suspected that the legend I created would change our lives forever. In the twelfth summer of my youth, stranded at my grandparents' house with nothing more to do than to play with the old wig in the attic, I devised a plan that I knew would surely scare the girls. Rifling through the dusty encyclopedias that lined the stairs, I settled upon the dark story of the Shawnee Indian Tenskwatawa. In his day, he was known as the Prophet, a holy man who preached of the Great Spirit and Master of Life, and condemned people of witchcraft, including an old woman that he slowly burned at the stake for four days. Dependence on goods such as guns, iron cookware, glass beads, and alcohol from the white settlers were seen as horrific sins in his eyes. 
he teamed with his brother Tecumseh in forming a Native American confederation against the whites pushing west. Citing that the master of life would guarantee victory, Tin Squatawa was routed at Tippecanoe by future president William Henry Harrison. But that's where my story changed. In my story, Tin Squatawa was brutally killed in the same small town that my grandparents lived. In my story, President William Henry Harrison died in office by the curse of Tin Squatawa. With the help of Mark, the 10-year-old that lived next door, we crafted cryptic messages on remnants of old scrap paper and strategically placed them where the girls would offhandedly discover them. We laughed in secret when my sister, Tammy, ran to us, panting with the first scrawled note in her hand. As the mystery deepened for Tammy and Mandy, we needed more information about the Indian prophet than the encyclopedia could provide. Mark helped us with a raggedy, leather-bound journal that he stumbled across at the library. The pages were ancient and crackled when we turned them, but they let us see through another's eyes the fire that Tinsquatoa brought with him. Near the back of the journal was the strange description of finding the buried body of a fallen tribesman. By taking two rods an arm's length long, each with six feathers attached to it and holding them out from the body, the grave seeker patrols the area where he suspects the body to be. If the rods cross, the journal states a Shawnee Indian is buried there. Naturally, we told Tammy and Mandy that the body of Tin Squatawa was buried beneath our grandparents' basement, and we were going to find him. I just hadn't suspected that I might actually be right. I stopped dead in my tracks and stared open-mouthed at the rods, but continued to play along. Did the note say anything about being buried in the coal bin? Mandy trembled. No, it just said underneath the basement. Tammy frowned. But I thought Indian burial grounds were supposed to have lots of bodies. This is just one. Mark quickly countered, maybe that means he was important and was buried in a special place. Mandy began biting her nails. Maybe it's Tinsquatawa. Tammy scowled. Maybe it's just some dumb guy that got lost in the woods. I know how we can find out, blurted Mark. Everyone stared at him, afraid of what he may actually suggest. We're not going to dig him up, Mandy stammered. No, the journal. Mark nodded his head in the direction of the floor above us where the book had been laid. At the end of it is a ritual for raising the spirit of an Indian. It's supposed to send them on their way to the great spirit. No one said anything. We all continued to simply stare at Mark, unable to fathom what would be involved with raising a restless Native American spirit hundreds of years old. He elaborated, If I remember right, we'll need the feathers from these rods, a handful of earth, and a drop of blood. I guess one of us could prick their finger with something. Then there are some words we're supposed to say, Won't this be so cool? Still, we just stared at Mark as if he were some sort of bizarre creature from another world. Suddenly, something fell against the far wall and we all jumped out of our shoes. Mandy crept back toward the door and clung to the frame, ready to bolt to the safety of upstairs. Mark shot me a bewildered look as if he thought he had done something to create the noise. I shrugged and inched toward the wall to see what had fallen. The replacement of the old coal furnace decades before I was born had left the coal bin destined to be a junk storage room. It was filled with broken sets of golf clubs, crumbling furniture covered with dust, and jars of something Grandma had cooked up before the war. When I prodded through the golf clubs, something furry darted across the floor and into an old bowling shoe, and we all screamed. It's just a mouse, Tammy spat. I'm out of here. She stormed away with Mandy right on her heels. Mark and I gave the coal bin one final look, and we reluctantly trailed behind. Let's do it tonight, Mark insisted later that evening after dinner. I'm sleeping over anyway. It's the perfect time. No way. I closed the door to the bedroom so we could discuss in secret. 
we're only doing all of this for a few laughs. But what if it is Tinsquatawa? Then we'd better leave him there. He wasn't exactly a nice guy. But this is a chance to meet a real live Indian, not something like we see on TV. When I was at the library, there were all kinds of cool stuff about Native Americans and how they lived. I punched Mark in the shoulder with a friendly jab. Except he's not a real live Indian, numbskull. He's dead, in the ground. We shouldn't mess with that no matter how much we want to scare Tammy and Mandy. Mark grunted in frustration, but then, but then we could see what he was really like. The little painting we saw of him was pretty awesome. He could teach us stuff. Tin Squatawa back in the day would have been cool. Zombie Tin Squatawa today? Not so much. Mark dropped the subject after that, but something told me he wasn't really done with the matter. In fact, as we went to bed later that night, I could have sworn I saw him tuck the old journal under his pillow. Thump, thump. I rolled over in bed and groggily squinted at the clock. 3.02 a.m. Thump, thump. Ah, who left the TV on? I wearily called out into the darkness. Thump, thump. Thump, thump. You hear that, Mark? Mark? I rolled back over and peered at the other bed where Mark was supposed to be sleeping. He wasn't there. Thump, thump. Thump, thump. My mind started racing, trying to place a sound as the thumping became steadier, like the repetitious beat of a drum. Thump, thump. Thump, thump. Thump, thump. It was a leather-skinned drum like the ones Native Americans would beat on as they prepared for war. I leaped out of my bed as the thumping grew louder, threw on my robe, and was about to grab the doorknob when a blood-curdling scream ripped through the entire house. Aye! I ripped open the door and dashed down the stairs, nearly plowing over my father, who had also awoken to the beating drum that had now suddenly stopped. Lights were being thrown on everywhere in the wake of the nerve-wracking scream that still echoed through the walls. My father and I tore through the kitchen and down the basement steps, the rest of the household barreling right along behind us. What we saw down there was unimaginable and has been left as a scar upon my very soul. A blue light dazzled from the coal bin and a Native American wearing a red headdress danced with its rays, within its rays with a fresh scalp in his hand. He chanted words we didn't understand as he spun around, then stopped and stared at us, holding out the scalp. He shrilled out an ear-splitting laugh, and in a flash, he was gone. No one knows how long we stood motionless on the steps, but it seemed like hours. Finally, my father slowly ventured into the coal bin and returned with six feathers speckled with blood in the old leather-bound journal. Mark was never seen again, and to this very day, the police still believe he ran away. The coal bin was boarded up, and my grandparents placed an old, heavy dresser in front of the door so no one would dare try to enter again. My family never talks of that night and the tragedy that fell upon it. But sometimes, on a hot and hazy summer night, when the destitute wind is still, one can distinctly hear the thump-thump of a drum echoing from the dark recesses of the old coal bin. And uh, just so that you know, since, like I said, that's based on uh, a little bit of my past there, uh, Matt, Matthew, is uh, quite well alive and uh, never did run away. Uh, that was all the f fictitious part of the story. But we did have an amazing time as kids um, playing around with that legend and leaving notes for each other. Um, you know, we almost made like a scavenger hunt of it, going around the house looking for other notes and clues and, and all that stuff. Uh, so that was a lot of fun. And, and to write that story uh, years ago, uh, you know, it was, you know, before even my book, 
uh, Ghosts of Maryland came out. I ended up including this in Campfire Tales Midwest later. Uh, that was a lot of fun to be able to include that because that was one of my first um, you know, kind of original paranormal or ghost stories that I wrote uh, as a young adult. Okay, this next one is a true story. It's called Not a Psychic in the Parlor, and this is from Encounters with the Paranormal, Volume 4, Volume 4, Volume 4, the Fairy Plantation Edition. And I actually covered this story uh, on the Beyond the Shadows show on the live stream on Tuesday night on the Edge of the Rabbit Hole channel. Also in the um, My Most Haunted Paranormal Investigations video on... Uh, on Monday that I uploaded to the Haunted Road Media YouTube channel. Uh, and this is something that actually happened to me at the Fairy Plantation. Um, I never claimed to be psychic, but this was a particular night in which uh, Spirit was actually communicating with something. And many people tell me that I have more going on than I give myself credit for. And um, this was definitely uh, one of those evenings. And uh, Fairy Plantation is out in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Uh, very historic mansion that's still out there. And if you ever get an opportunity to when you're uh, out in the Virginia Beach area, definitely uh, go visit it. You will be uh, absolutely amazed. Not a Psychic in the Parlor from Encounters with the Paranormal, Tales, Personal Tales of the Supernatural, Volume 4, The Fairy Plantation Edition. I don't claim to be a psychic. I mentioned it in an earlier chapter in the volume. I have what one may call sensitivities to the paranormal, but I would never claim to be a psychic medium. Friends of mine tell me that I have a lot more going on than I give myself credit, and my first ever visit to the Fairy Plantation in September 2016 is a testament to that. First of all, I have to say that I immediately fell in love with the Fairy Plantation when I first graced its threshold. Extremely historic in a very old part of the country, it has all the charm you could ever imagine of a 19th century federal-style home, even though it rests smack dab in the middle of a modern, high-class neighborhood that has tragically tried to squeeze it right out of the history books. See the forward for more information. Add in the mystique of the 1735 courthouse it was appended to in the 1850 extension that contains what may be the most haunted room in the whole mansion, and you have a building I could get lost in forever. Following a paranormal convention that had been held that day, I spent the early parts of the evening getting acquainted with the house before it was opened wide for other paranormal investigators. I believe I met Bessie playing in the closet of the nursery, and Henry seemed to be home in his quarters at the very top of the old courthouse section of the mansion. I've also met Eric, the little boy who fell out of the second floor window in what now serves as a conference room, but that was on a subsequent trip to the house the following year. It was in the best parlor that I met another resident spirit, yet it was one who had a distinct message for me. The parlor is part of the 1850 extension of the house and is where the family would entertain guests. It is also where they would hold wakes if someone in the family had passed away, and the caretakers of the fairy plantation honored that type of event by setting up a mock wake in the room. Displayed out on a long table was a faux body and was surrounded in the room by a handful of mourning gowns on mannequins. It was an unusual sight that one doesn't usually see set up in a historic home, but the fairy plantation does embrace its paranormal nature. I investigated this room on my own that evening. Other paranormal investigators were scattered about the house, and at different times I investigated with a few of them, but I wanted this room on my own. Call it a feeling I had. 
My modest setup for this room was simply an infrared camera that I placed on the mantle, a K2 electromagnetic field detector that I placed next to the, quote, body, unquote, on the table, a bell hanging from a chair near the piano forte, once owned by Thomas Jefferson, and the digital audio recorder that I always keep strapped to my arm. That was it. I generally try to keep my investigation simple anyway. Less is more, in my opinion, with our bodies being the best paranormal tool that we have at our disposal. That certainly became the case that night. I started off with the usual pleasantries. I introduced myself and stated my intentions were to learn more about the house and meet the people that live there. I have a deep respect for those souls that have passed into the afterlife, and I express that respect when I walk into their homes. It's what I would do if they were still amongst the living. I also try to learn as much about the location as I can before venturing in to investigate so that I have a much better chance of building a rapport with the spirits rather than just randomly throwing questions to the wind. I relate that method to being more like a salesman, although I understand why psychic mediums don't want to know any information beforehand. I also believe the history of a location can act as its own trigger object when you include it in our questioning. My first topic of choice was the magnolia tree in the backyard. It was planted on April 6, 1863 by Sally Rebecca Walk as a memorial to her fiancé John, who had fallen during the American Civil War fighting for the Confederacy. I didn't get any immediate responses to this line of questioning. I switched my questioning to the display in front of me, the fake body. Once I asked, what do you think of this display out here, I got an immediate tingle, a staticky type of feeling up my arms, and the room started getting very cold. Okay, somebody's here, I told the camera. I had the feeling that whomever had just heard, made herself known didn't like the mock wake. When I addressed this suspicion of mine, a chill ripped up my arm. In the video footage, you can see me arch my back and shake it off. The presence was strong. I could not shake the chill as I continued my questioning, the temperature seemingly dropping while I remained in the parlor talking about the display on the table before me. I had the overwhelming feeling that whomever was interacting with me was a woman, and this woman did not like the display in the parlor at all. I was beginning to feel a little punch drunk, the amount of energy encompassing me, casting me off into a sea of bewilderment. What was going on? This doesn't ever happen to me. The woman wanted me to let the caretakers of the fairy plantation know that the display needed to be removed, that while, yes, wakes did occur in the parlor, they weren't the focal point of the room, and so many other good times had been had there. I pulled my unbuttoned overshirt close as the chill continued its icy torment over my body. Is there something you'd like me <laughs> Is there something you'd like to see here instead? You can just tell me. I have something here that might be able to pick up your voice. It's on my arm. A weird box thing that's on my arm. At that moment, I saw some sort of white band of light float in midair above the window behind the body. In my audio recorder, the very device I had just been explaining could possibly pick up a voice, picked up a woman's voice that distinctly said, help me. Unfortunately, I could not hear her voice at the time with my own ears, but I'd already been being made aware of this woman's desires for several minutes. The tingling sensation on my arms returned, and the temperature dropped down even further. I kept up my questioning for a while longer, but I did not see the white band of light again. I did, however, continue to feel cold and punch drunk, and the overwhelming feeling that the mock wake was disliked by the woman stayed with me. 
I finally exited the best parlor, said not a word, and exited the house to catch a breather out on the park bench in the garden at the front of the mansion. Heather Moore, the director of the Ferry Plantation, found me out there a minute later and asked me what happened. I recited my tale, and she proceeded to tell me that when I walked out of the parlor, the other investigators there that evening saw balls of light streaming off of me. After talking to Heather, I called my good friend psychic medium Vanessa Hogel to get some perspective from someone that has been experiencing this type of phenomena since the age of two. She concurred that what I experienced is one of the ways in which spirits communicate with her. She also reinforced, see what we've been telling you, that you have more going on than you give yourself credit for? And again, you can uh, find a recounting of this on the latest uh, Most Haunted Paranormal Investigation videos out on the Haunted Road Media channel that was just uploaded on Monday. There's a whole six-minute clip of this happening. Of course, there is an entire longer paranormal uh, investigation video from the Ferry Plantation that was uploaded you know, about four years ago, not long after uh, that investigation. You can get the entire uh, investigation, which is quite longer. I think that uh, video is probably close to a half an hour long. Um, but the the other one, um, the most, uh, most haunted paranormal investigation video, you get... Uh, six minutes of the Ferry Plantation, and then uh, a few other locations as well. Okay, for the next story, this is Feeling the Afterlife. This is also from Campfire Tales Midwest, so it's a fictional tale based on real history and legends. Um, I consider this the best paranormal short story that I've written to date. Um, just when, when you listen... And I encourage you to pick up Campfire Tales Midwest. I actually have a lot of uh, good little short stories in here. In all kind of the same, you know, fictional tales based on real history and legends. But uh, this one is the best of the lot. And I really get into what it could possibly feel like to be a ghost. So here we go. Feeling the afterlife. We were on maneuvers in the dead of the night in some godforsaken place. It was an open range, desolate, with small pit craters surrounding us from the exercises in the past. You could always hear that faint whistle of the incoming shell before it slammed into the ground and exploded in a ball of fire, illuminating the trees that surrounded what became our ground zero. One time, though, that whistle came too close. Where have I been? Memories have been somewhat elusive, fading in and out like an old light bulb. But they keep coming. Oh! I've been at Fort Chaffee in Arkansas. That's right. When I first arrived, they showed us the chair Elvis sat in to get his first military haircut back in 1958. The memory seems like it's trapped in a heavy bank of fog, like something out of a dream. They poke and prod me. I'm not aware of much around, but I hear someone say critical and another say that chances are slim. Do they not know I can hear them? I'm right here, fellas. I'm awake. I can't feel the lower half of my body. I try to move, but I'm completely paralyzed. Not my legs, not my arms, nothing, and I can't open my eyes. All is dark except for a red, hazy glow in my periphery. I vaguely sense that something is jammed up my nose while something else protrudes from my mouth. I don't want to imagine what I look like. Feet shuffle about the room and low, murmured voices continue to whisper around me. I can't hear exactly what they're saying anymore, but I know it's about me. Their tones are grave and concerned. There's more, 
poking and prodding while the erratic beat of the heart monitor pulsates in my ear over and over again. Metal clinks and chimes. A man mutters something indiscernible and an intense pressure presses down on my chest. This is what it feels like to be a patient. The room is lucid, almost transparent, yet dark. Is this a dream? A scorching pain in my chest makes it feel like I'm breathing in razors, each inhale labored and difficult. My heart is pounding, rapid, and painful. I want to scream to yell for help, for someone to come and end the agony. At least I can feel again, but something is wrong, very, very wrong. The darkness creeps in around me like a suffocating coffin. My body is tossed onto a roller coaster, convulsing up and down. Oddly, I don't actually lift from the bed with the waves. I experience only the sensation of the ride bounding through what's left of my shredded musculature. The waves get bigger and deeper, my breathing more raspy and painful, and I am helpless to stop it. For a split second, an electric tingle emanates through me, and thin, broken streaks of lightning carve crooked paths through the darkness, then disappear. The rippling ride ends, but the journey isn't over. I drift upward, weightlessly rising toward the ceiling. I can finally see again, but my eyes aren't pained from the sudden introduction of light into my world. In fact, it's not as if I open my eyelids at all. It's as if a veil or a shroud has been lifted from me. And not only has my sight been restored, but all the pain is gone as well. The ascent toward the top of the room slows and I hover in midair. What am I doing up here? I turn and gaze down at the thin, pale, destroyed figure of my bloodied corpse. This is what it feels like to die. I'm still here, but I'm not. People pass me by, but they don't see me. I try to talk to them, but they don't hear me. The entire complex is bustling with activity, hospital personnel coming and going, but I'm not a part of it. I roam the wards, searching for anyone who will acknowledge me, but no one does. The halls are all interconnected like one massive labyrinth. I can vaguely remember being informed that the Fort Chaffee Field Hospital was like its own little community, but I had never visited it. I wonder who told me that. Now, it's my home. Families come to watch movies at the theater while criminals are hauled into the modest prison section. Soldiers and doctors kick back with a few games of bowling at the small alley while medications are administered in the psychiatric ward. Sometimes, I take a curious glance at what's tossed into the incinerator, usually trash, but sometimes a body pot or two. The staff tossing it doesn't seem to mind one way or the other, and they all remain oblivious to my presence. What will it take? How can I make myself known? I've longed for that human interaction for I don't know how many years now. How long has it been? Time feels different now somehow. Someone has to know I exist. This is what it feels like to wander. Where has everyone gone? The complex had once been so busy with patients, doctors, military personnel of all kinds. Now they've vanished and the dust continues to collect. These days it's quiet here in a type of eeriness that would make my skin crawl, if I still had any. The hallways are long and empty and void of any human life. The raccoons break in and nest. I try to shoo them off, and sometimes it seems like I do. Perhaps the animals see me sometimes, whereas the humans never did. I miss them, even though they never knew I was there. Some of them became like friends to me. 
I followed them about and I learned about their lives. I would perch myself on a countertop and listen to Susie's or Nancy's or Buddy's stories. Now the only perching that's done at the hospital is by the birds and the rotting rafters. I hover in the hallways, waiting, listening to the silence. This is what it feels like to be abandoned. This is like living a second life. They come in the dead of the night and call for me, wondering if I'm there. Dressed all in black, they carry flashlights, small cameras, and other electronic gadgets that I've never seen before. They claim they can record my voice and listen to it later if I just speak. I call out to them, screaming sometimes, but they don't seem to react at all, except to ask more questions. These new questions don't always correlate with what I just answered, so I get annoyed and throw a piece of moldering plaster down the hallway. This excites them, and they cry out as if they've seen me. Did you see that shadow? I'm quite more than a shadow. I'm a soldier, fellas. I run down the hall, and they hear my footsteps. Their flashlights bob behind me as they try to catch up. The flashbulbs of the cameras dazzle the decrepit corridors, and I duck into a nearby room. I wonder if they can guess which one. It's like I'm playing hide-and-go-seek again as a child. Do I remember childhood? They creep toward me, asking more questions and claiming to see more shadows. One of the raccoons makes a thump in an adjacent ward, and the whole gang is startled. It must have gone in there. Thank you, Mr. Raccoon. As I inch into the ward, I sneak up behind them, floating carefully until I'm directly behind the girl with dark curly hair. She stops dead in her tracks. Guys, my backside is freezing cold, and it's like all the hair is standing up on the back of my neck. They turn around to see her shivering, and I reach over and turn off her flashlight. Their shrill gives me a bit of a laugh, and I smile. I sort of have friends again. This is what it feels like on my side of the ghost hunt. Who are these guys? They look like the same type of people who have been coming from time to time to try and take my picture and record my voice, but the cameras these guys are hauling are much bigger and can be mounted on their shoulders. One guy's hair looks like a black shark fin has been plastered onto his head. It's sweltering outside, even I don't like it but they bear through it with their boisterous gait about the hospital complex. Every room seems to be like one big deal to them, as if the old OBGYN clinic is going to be the lead story on the evening news. I shake my invisible head and chuckle. Admittedly, it's entertaining. I think I'm on TV. I toy with them a little bit and give the boys a playful show. I lock the bald guy, who likes to say whoa in one of the cells, until he has to kick the door open really hard with his massive boot. They don't hear me, but... I laugh hard all the way down the hall. This is what it feels like to have fun again. It's an inferno. Scorching heat breathes its volcanic life into me, waves of flames cascading through the dry timber of the complex. The whole thing goes up in seconds in the arid heat of August roast, buildings torched to the ground like kindling. The roar of the fire is like a lion's rage, rapid, overpowering, and loud, and I don't know where to run. Every square inch of what I've been calling home for years is consumed in blazing flame. Even in my ethereal state, I can feel the searing heat on my body. It tears through me like a tornado of molten lava and takes with it every last building of what had been the Fort Chaffee Field Hospital. I try to scream, but billowing clouds of acrid smoke pour out into the night sky, choking off the land and me. It's all gone. This is what it feels like to burn and die a second death. Firemen sift through the ash, looking for any remains other than mine. But they're not really looking for me, are they? My body is long since gone, 
buried in a nondescript grave a few miles away. They're searching for what has started the blaze, but even I don't know what caused it, and I was here when it started. There will never be a real answer. Gone are the people with the cameras and gadgets, with the lights and those little black devices they said could record my voice. Gone is anyone interested in knowing if I am really here. Gone is my second life. What had been my home is now a wasteland. Piles of ash and small concrete pillars dot the landscape of the smoldering wreckage. The firemen leave, and I am utterly alone, the silence more prescient than ever. Even the raccoons and birds have fled to make new homes elsewhere. But here I remain, because there is no other place for me to go, after all. This is what it feels like to linger. Will I feel anything next? So that one was about the Fort Chaffee Field Medical Complex, which uh, burned down in 2011, unfortunately. We were one of the last teams to investigate that, may have actually been the last. Um, and it was it was quite sad. Just uh, one night it went up in flames. Um, still a little controversy to this day as to how and why it was burned. It had just been um, designated a... Uh, National Historic Landmark, uh, the the crew there that, that runs the little museum with the Elvis chair and also ran the, um, the haunted prison that was there, um, had worked really hard to get that taken care of because they were trying to, to preserve it and they ran those ghost hunts out of there uh, quite often. But um, it was like a day after they were awarded that designation that the thing went up in flames. Um, you know, they... They blame it on an accident from uh, trespassers, you know, uh, who were smoking apparently. And I don't know how you determine that in an area that's so huge. And, you know, if everything goes up in flames, how do you find the remnants of the cigarette? I don't know. But, um, yeah, we were there um, the day after it burned down. We were actually um, en route to another location to investigate. But we decided we would swing by, kind of pay our respects. Um, I kind of snuck up onto the land a little bit and got a couple of closer photos, even though you know we weren't supposed to. Um, but while we were there, the fire kicked back up again um, on the backside. And so while we were there you know, filming and I'm doing like a little introduction and all that, my, my daughter's holding the, the camera and one other guy was uh, with us at the time. And uh, all of a sudden that fire kicks back up. Uh, you know, which is just terrible. And um, so we pretty much have the only footage of, of that uh, happening, which is out again on the Hunter Road Media YouTube channel, which uh, if you just look up like Fort Chaffee um, Fire, uh, you should be able to, to find that. But we also have, I mean, these are old videos from you know, almost 10 years ago now uh, of investigating that location. It was like a massive labyrinth, um, you know, all kinds of, uh, long hallways and, uh, some people related to like the game doom. Um, it was really, really an interesting place. And so it was very sad that, uh, that it burned down. All right. Next one is a true one. Um, I'm reading this encounter. Um, it's a stone lion in, I'm reading this out of Encounters with the Paranormal, the very first Encounters with the Paranormal book. There's a longer version of it in Ghosts and Legends of Oklahoma, um, but I'm just going to read the shorter version out of it from Encounters with the Paranormal. And this is really my uh, 
favorite haunted house. Absolutely love going here. Um, haven't been back in a few years now. I was actually there for um, <laughs> for filming of Ghost Adventures uh, four years ago now. They had interviewed me about this location because of my experiences there, which they ended up not using any of. Um, we won't go into that. And then prior to that, it had been since, I'm thinking early 2012, since I had last investigated there. Maybe it was 2011. So this is also one that goes a, a ways back. Um, so in any case, uh, this particular evening here was uh, a pretty significant experience that we had there at the Stone Lion Inn. And if you are out in Guthrie, Oklahoma, at some point, I highly recommend visiting there, as well as the entire town. The entire town is really, really very haunted. Uh, my Ghosts and Legends of Oklahoma book has a section just on Guthrie itself because it's so very haunted. So here we go. Stone Lion Inn from Encounters with the Paranormal, Volume 1. Of all the haunted locations I've visited, the Stone Lion Inn in Guthrie, Oklahoma, has long been one of my favorites, if not the favorite. Just one glance at its structure, and it simply looks like a haunted house. But while the aesthetics certainly lavish the house with that creepy ambiance, it is the paranormal activity inside that truly makes it haunted. It is a house that never seems to rest and is perpetually active. Just stand and listen, and you'll hear footsteps or a door open or close, creaks and groans throughout the eternally throughout eternally build to a let me reread that just stand and listen and you'll hear footsteps or a door open or close creaks and groans throughout eternally build to a crescendo i wrote that a little weird but okay historically the stone lion end was built in 1907 by the houghton family who had six children and were outgrowing their small abode on a lot next door Fred E. Houghton made the run into Oklahoma in 1889, coming in on the second train into the territory, was the founder of the Cotton Oil Company, the owner of the first car dealership in Oklahoma, the F.E. Houghton Motor Company, and a member of Guthrie's first city council. He was a key figure in installing the town's first waterworks, street surveying, and building schools. Houghton was also one of the accused in what was known as the Cotton Gin Cases in 1909, a series of cases in which local businessmen were indicted by a grand jury for conducting a pool in Logan County for the control and regulation of the cotton trade. However, Houghton's case was dismissed when the first case in the series brought against W.H. Coyle returned a not-guilty verdict in 1913. During their time at the Stone Lion Inn, the Houghtons had five more children. Unfortunately, one of their young daughters was overmedicated with opium-laced cough syrup, a common remedy in those days, by one of the maids. It's debatable as to who this child may have been, since it was long believed to be the daughter Augusta, until it was discovered that Augusta, in fact, had lived a long life. Thus, the mysterious child spirit that haunts the house may be the unknown four-year-old that died in the older house, or in Irene, that shows up in the 1910 census records, but not the 1920. When financial instability hit the family in the 1920s, the family left their house in Guthrie and moved to Enid, where they owned a mercantile. In their stead, Smith's Funeral Home leased the mansion from the Houghtons and used it as a mortuary for eight years. It was a classic use for a classic haunted house, where the old embalming table now rests in the entrance hall. My second foray into the Stone Lion Inn was the most active by far, and it all started in the entrance hall on, my fr on the first floor during a paranormal investigation of the house. 
There's a bureau that rests there, blocking the main double doors to what had been the parlor and is now called the parlor suite, used as a bedroom for the bed and breakfast. For some odd reason, one of the top doors of the bureau had been open, and it suddenly slammed shut as we gathered near the small hall that now takes you to the parlor suite entrance. We all rushed out to see what had made the noise and noticed the changed state of the drawer. One of our investigators, Johnny, had his tri-field EMF detector out and was busy trying to get a reading while I started snapping away with my camera. While Johnny didn't get a strong reading, I did, in fact, capture a white wisp hanging in the air between Johnny and the bureau. Once we had finished sweeping the entrance hall for whatever may have shut the drawer, we decided to split up and I started leading a team upstairs. I was about halfway up when one of our other investigators started to set forth upward after me. Suddenly, a framed photograph on the wall between us fell and shattered across the stairs. We all jumped at the surprising crash. When we caught our breath, we noticed what had fallen was a photograph of Lizzie Borden, the infamous New England spinster who was accused of hatcheting her parents to death in 1892. That wasn't the only haunting moment we had on the stairs that evening. Later on, when a group of us decided to return upstairs, the house grew abnormally quiet. We all then stopped ascending the staircase for a moment when the door to the Lucille Mohall bedroom suite in front of us creaked open. It was a doorway in which on previous visits to the house, we had seen shadows dart out. To cap off that evening, I was later in the library off the entrance hall sweeping the room with a K2 meter, a type of electromagnetic field detector that uses a series of colored lights from green to red to signal the strength of a nearby electromagnetic field. The K2 was keeping relatively quiet when, suddenly, it started spiking high into the red near the fireplace. At the same time, I felt a surge of energy hit me full on from the front, and I immediately got lightheaded, teetering where I stood. Then, as quickly as it had come, the surge of energy was gone. Stories of a little girl haunting the Stone Lion Inn have long followed the building, as have moving objects, human-like shadows darting about, doors opening and closing on their own, disembodied footsteps, and the occasional appearance of a man in a top hat. The house never rests. The house now serves appropriately as a bed and breakfast with a weekend murder mystery dinner theater. Even if you can't solve the crime, perhaps you'll see a ghost. So, yeah, that's just one evening uh, from investigating there. We had investigated there several times, but that one between uh, almost passing out from you know whatever energy by the, uh, the fireplace in the library to all that craziness in the entrance hall and then later on the door creaking open. Yeah, we've seen shadows dart in and out of there all the time. Uh, it's definitely a, an extremely haunted house and definitely recommend uh, visiting there if you ever have the chance. All right, and for the uh, last ghost story that I'm going to read, another true one. Uh, This one is going to come from my first paranormal book, Ghosts of Maryland, which came out, what was that, 2010? Something like that, early 2010. Um, So this this book is 10 years old now. Go figure that. Um, But I been, you know, I'd researched that one and had been writing on that for a couple of years uh, leading up to that. So this is... uh, the Snowden homes, and have had some interesting experiences uh, at the Montpelier Mansion. One of those uh, following this, but um, you know, because they asked me back there to do like some uh, story readings and stuff like that. Uh, basically, from here, so let's get into it. The Snowden homes. 
One of the wealthier families in Maryland during the 18th and 19th centuries was the Snowden family of Welsh descent. Richard Snowden, who arrived in 1669, not only made a profit in agriculture, but was also part owner of a successful ironworks that lasted numbers of generations. There are at least two noted occasions in which George Washington ordered iron implements from Snowden's ironworks for his estate at Mount Vernon. As the Snowden family's wealth grew, so did their land holdings. At one point, Major Thomas Snowden, Richard's grandson, owned over 9,000 acres in Prince George's County, much of which is now the towns of Laurel and Beltsville, as well as the surrounding area. Throughout the county, there are a number of <laughs> Throughout the county, there are a number of former Snowden estates and homes that were built on this land and are now either being restored by private owners or being run by the Prince George's County Department of Parks and Recreation. Montpelier Mansion One of these estates is Montpelier Mansion, a Georgian-style mansion built between 1781 and 1785 by Thomas. Two fireboxes in the house are inscribed TSA 1783, indicating ownership by Thomas and his wife Anne Ridgely Snowden. The mansion originally overlooked the Patuxent River, but the creation of the Rocky Gorge Dam to feed the local reservoir now blocks the river from continuing to flow past. Chronicler Lawrence Buckler Thomas once wrote of Thomas Snowden, He lived on Montpelier, which was on the great northern and southern post road, and entertained great numbers of people who were then continuously passing upon it and in accordance with the hospitable customs of the day, would not hesitate to stop at his residence for the night. Washington himself once spent the night there, and the bed in which he slept is still preserved. And it is still there to this day, by the way. Unfortunately, our first president's inaugural stay at Montpelier wasn't a pleasant one. He spent the night there in May 1787, en route to Philadelphia as a member of the Continental Congress. He was suffering from a severe headache and was well as well as a stomach ache and reportedly went to bed early he returned a second time on his way back from philadelphia without incident martha washington also spent the night at montpelier in 1789 on her way to attend the inauguration of her husband as president in new york another president's wife abigail adams also spent the night at the mansion while traveling south to join her husband in washington in 1800 apparently the hospitality of the snowdens has continued on in the afterlife it has been said that the ghosts of George and Martha Washington have roamed the grounds at Montpelier, and there have even been sightings of Thomas Jefferson. Aside from our forefathers, in 1968, a caretaker spotted the apparition of Anne Ridgely in the house, recognizing her from the Snowden artwork. Another caretaker at the mansion, while he couldn't name anyone specific, stated that he has seen figures moving about in the East Wing. A former tour guide at Montpelier Mansion had a number of ghostly stories to share. At nights during the autumn, Thomas Snowden's son has been known to ride up to the house on horseback. An unidentified woman wrapped in a colorful quilt has walked up the main stairwell from time to time and has disappeared into the wall. On occasion, she may walk through a person or even look directly at him or her. Uh, there was a uh, event uh, um, that I talked about a moment ago in which I was reading the ghost stories, and afterwards we did a candlelight tour of the house, and my friend Kat Gash had actually caught a uh, shadow there by the stairs, and so we were wondering, of course we don't know for sure, if that was the woman with this quilt. An apparition of a young girl has sometimes been spotted in an upstairs window outside the master bedroom. There is also a ghost of a prankster, one who likes to lock doors and cabinets. Sometimes a faint smell of roses can waft through the air of rooms that contain no flowers. Oaklands. 
Oakland, an older home in the Snowden lineage, has an even larger collection of strange tales surrounding it. The majority of the brick home was built in the 1780s, but its foundation dates to an older structure built in the pre-1730s upon which the current house was constructed. Tradition holds that Richard Snowden built the 1730s house as a wedding present for his daughter. A recent examination of the plaster in an upstairs bedroom has revealed a layer also dating to the 1730s, so the origins of the building remain shrouded in mystery. What is known for sure is that Oakland's was passed down by Major Thomas Snowden of Mount Pillar to his son Richard, when Richard married Eliza Warfield in February 1798. After the death of Eliza, Richard married her sisters Louisa. Anne Snowden, the eldest child of Richard and Eliza, inherited the property and married Captain John Conti, a Marine Commandant who served on the USS Constitution during the War of 1812. Her younger brother, Richard Nichols Snowden, was a participant in one of the most infamous card games in Maryland folklore. One dark night, a heated card game was being battled in the sitting room between Richard and three others. The stakes were high, and the players were rife with red wine when one of them was suddenly called away from the game by an urgent message. His departure would spell the end of the game. Richard and the two other guests declared, We would play with the devil if he took your place. A few moments after the player left, a knock resounded from the door, and a tall, slim man, whom no one recognized, entered. May I take the vacant place, he offered. The host was anxious to continue the game, so he let the stranger sit with them at the table. Heated play resumed, and the newcomer was fixed in an incredible streak of luck. They played on through the morning into the following afternoon and were still going strong into the evening, the four of them unwilling to end their boisterous game. Finally, the stranger had won every last dollar of the other three men sitting at the table, and he rose to bid them farewell. At the door he bowed, and the weary eyes of the three men sharpened when they noticed the outline of a forked tail beneath the back of his coat and the scent of brimstone that wafted in the air when he swept out of the house. Anne and, Richard father's, Anne and Richard's father was buried with his two wives, Eliza and Louisa, somewhere on the premises of Oakland's. Their brother Thomas was buried there as well, but over time, the site of these graves has been lost. When the land around the house was recently sold to a housing developer, archaeologists were brought out by the county to try to locate the graves and make sure they weren't disturbing the development, or during the development. All the archaeologists were able to find were the charred remnants of an old barn. Preservationists have suggested that since many of the Snowdens were Quakers, that there may not be grave markers, since Quakers often didn't make uh, marking graves a practice. It's also possible that the grave markers simply crumbled away over time. While Oakland's is officially designated as a historic Prince George's County site with a cemetery, the location of the Snowden graves is still a mystery, and could very well be in somebody's backyard. In 1911, the property came into the control of Charles R. Hoof, whose wife was a descendant of the Snowdens, although no longer of the direct line. Prior to his acquisition, Oakland's had fallen into a state of disrepair, and the Hoof's goal was to renovate the house as close to the original specifications as he could. In the 1920s, John W. Staggers bought the rejuvenated estate, and his descendants continue to own it to this day. Their account of events at Oakland's has ranged from what some might call a typical haunting to rather extraordinary. It's been commonly reported that between 9 and 10 p.m., the sound of horse hooves gallop up the driveway. The gallop will stop at the front door and will be followed by the sound of footsteps entering the house. Not long after, the sound of horse hooves will resume, galloping off into the night. Could this be the mysterious rider 
ghost of the devil that came to play cards? Or could it be the messenger that called away one of the players from the game? It could be the ghost of Richard Conti, whom, according to the wife of John Staggers, many family members claim to have been uh, claimed to have seen walking the grounds on numerous occasions. Richard Conti was a major in Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia during the Civil War. There's a strong rumor that Major Conti had gone insane, and during one of his episodes, had carved his name into the wall of the one of the third floor bedrooms. To this day, the etching of his name can still be seen when the sun shines on it just right. Another common occurrence at Oakland's is the sudden strong scent of apple blossoms wafting through the air. The current owner in the Staggers lineage, Donald Lady, is a skeptic concerning ghosts, but he did confirm that the apple blossom smell is a popular story and he once experienced something similar, a strong scent and the feeling that he wasn't alone. When asked what type of scent he smelled, he responded, let's put it this way, what a non-smoker, what a non-smoker may call apple blossoms, a smoker would call a strong scent, but it was definitely out of place. A variety of apparitions has been seen in and around the house. A small boy in a brown, brown suit with an old rounded collar has been spotted a few times in an upstairs bedroom. No one is certain whom he may be, although there has been speculation that he is the son of Major Conti. There have also been sightings of a large black woman and a black man wearing vintage work clothes. It's unknown who they may specifically be, but at one point there had been nearly 200 slaves working at Oakland's. A woman in a hoop dress has reportedly been seen in the middle of the night, and an old woman peering out of a third-floor bedroom window has also been seen at various times. One such incident with the old woman in the window also involved Mr. Lady. He was driving up to the house when his passenger remarked that there was someone in the leftmost third-floor window. The house was closed at the time for renovation, and no one should have been in the house. Fearing trespassers, they ran inside but no one was to be found, and no entry point into the house was discovered. When Mr. Lady later asked his friend whom he saw, he answered that it was an old woman who was at the window for just a moment. John Picor and Pam Picor Unger are grandchildren of Don's John Staggers and have both lived in the house for significant periods of time. Pam had heard the invisible horse hooves approaching the house several times and had seen the ghosts of the slaves. She often encountered the apple blossom scent and would occasionally hear the sound of a rocking chair creaking back and forth in the bedroom above hers. When she encountered the ghost of the small boy, he simply stared at her and refused to go away until she turned off the bedroom light. Pam also had a unique haunting of her own. Whenever she would begin to take a bath or shower, an unseen entity would begin ringing an old farm bell just outside the house. To eliminate the annoying disturbance, Pam removed the bell. Pam's husband, Bill, was once awakened in the middle of the night by the sound of heavy footsteps dragging across the floor. He couldn't see anything in the darkness, but the sound of breathing kept drawing ever closer to him. Finally, he could feel someone bending over him, but still there was nothing to be seen. Bill felt paralyzed and wanted to shout, but couldn't. After what seemed like an eternity, the presence still pressing down on him, Bill was able to, able to gather enough of himself together to poke Pam, who was fast asleep next to him, when she sprang awake, the terrifying entity instantly dissipated. While the incident with Bill may have been one of Oakland's more terrifying incidents, John Picor has probably experienced one of the more unusual. He was outside on the house grounds when a lovely young woman in a long dress motioned to him from across the lawn. He was interested to find out what she wanted, though she said nothing to him and just began walking. She led John to one of the terraces and pointed down toward the ground. When she did so, she disappeared. John was shocked, but when he peered down to where she had pointed, 
he discovered a gold chain, most likely a necklace, but of unknown provenance. He took it to a local Laurel jeweler who had dated the piece of craftsmanship to the 1700s. John saw the woman again at a later date, but it's unclear as to who she is and what her connection to the chain may be. Was this a ghost seeking a missing heirloom, or was the chain some sort of connection to a transgression committed against the woman, as John and Pam believe? The brother and sister have, have both, on a number of occasions, heard a woman crying within the house, although an exact location could never be pinpointed. They, as well as others, have also heard screams emanating from the nearby woods, the site of an old, unsolved murder that took place over 70 years ago. Those who have heard the screams believe they are from the woman who was killed there. While the majority of the strange events at Oakland's have been eerie and sometimes terrifying, there have been signs of another recently. Don Liddy has been renovating the old house and spent some time praying as to whether or not it was the right thing to do. A few nights later, he had a roaring fire going in the fireplace. It had become so hot that the protective grating that he had placed in front of it had started warping and melting. He pulled the searing metal away and put out the fire. The following day, he was on the phone with a friend and was excitedly telling her about a 1950s vintage chandelier that he found in the house when his excitement grew even more. Resting upon what had been a melting grate was a small white plastic cross. Something he knows couldn't have been there the night before because it would have easily melted. Was it a sign from God? Why not? After all, the devil had already been at Oakland's playing cards. And that was from Ghosts of Maryland, which, of course, you can find on my website, MikeRicksecker.com. You can find all these on MikeRicksecker.com and, of course, uh, out there on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and you know, basically wherever you can uh, you know, buy books. So <laughs> I want to thank everybody for listening in to the ghost stories this evening. I want to wish all of you a very happy and safe Halloween. I'm Mike Ricksecker. Until next time.